Welcome to Founders Without Borders, a podcast where we dive deep into the journeys and stories of immigrant founders who are building generational businesses. I'm your host, Harshita, and I'm so excited to introduce you to our guest for today. From a small town in South India, Karthik Bhuvada, lovingly known as KP, made it to the U.S. for his grad school more than a decade ago and has not looked back since then. KP is a five-time founder, a podcast host, angel investor, advisor, coach, and a leader of the building public movement that is taking the internet by storm. He's the founder and CEO of Building Public Fellowship, an online program and community to help founders and creators put themselves out there and build in public fearlessly. He also co-founded two SaaS startups and built over 15 no-code side hustles with two exits. Recently, he also joined Utopic Ventures as a partner where he invests in scientists with world-changing ideas. KP, thank you so much for taking the time and uh, coming on Founders Without Borders and chatting with me today. You're so welcome. I enjoyed our one-on-one before this uh, a couple of weeks ago, I think. Uh, I had a blast and I thought, yeah, we definitely should do a longer version and record it this time. So excited to be here. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for the opportunity. I was telling you this yesterday, but I was sitting and trying to figure out questions and there's just so much to dive into. So I guess I'm just going to go right into it. You've had such a diverse, non-linear path professionally, right? Like you started as an engineer, you were a business analyst for a couple of years, and then you went on to lead and start and create and grow some really amazing community-driven programs. You are a podcast host, you are an angel investor, now you're a founder. I'm sure I've missed a couple other things uh, in the middle somewhere. Don't forget my Twitter. Oh, yeah, oh, yes, you're a creator, just kidding. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, all those things are super, super exciting. And it's like very interesting to see that journey from starting in engineering into like growing in other aspects of your life and skills. I do want to dive into that. I want to get to the beginning a little bit to understand just like how KP was made. I'm curious to hear about your childhood. How, like, where did you grow up? I know you're from India. Uh, what part of India did you grow up in? And then what was your childhood like? I don't know if you saw it. I made a tweet about this and it kind of blew up. And I don't know if it sounded too much like a rags to riches kind of narrative. But uh, the truth is that I grew up in a tiny village in an obscure village called Bomoro. Maybe you can find that on Google Maps. Uh, it's in South India. It's, it's about 400 miles from Hyderabad. So the nearest big town was this another obscure town called Rajamandri, which I think is a bigger, it's a port town. So... Some of the Telugu's, you know, who are listening to this might recognize that. So I grew up in a very small village like that. It was maybe like 5,000 people max. I was there from my birth to, I think, 14 years old. I was there in that vicinity of Momoro and Rajmandri. And um, we grew up in uh, lower income neighborhoods. It sounds so dramatic when I say it out loud, but we didn't have running water at home, you know, which, which, which is, again... From the American lens, it's shocking, right? Like you don't have a tap and you turn and there's no water. Uh, my son, who's two and a half years old, will never, never, never understand that that thing. But yeah, we were carrying pails of water from a nearby well and, you know, store them for three, four days. And then that's, you know, that's what we used for cooking or, you know, uh, taking baths in the bathroom or things like that. So very, very humble beginnings. And I actually didn't have much aspirations at the time of myself either. I was a very shy kid in school. Most of my classmates, I don't think they remember me. You know, it was very forgettable easily because in a class of 60 or 70 people, I was like, um, 
ranks wise because they would have these academic ranks in in my class and i would like i was like maybe 53rd or something in a class of 60 or 70 you know um i genuinely didn't really pay attention to like something like curiosity or learning as much part of it correlates with the fact that my mom and dad were away from me for the first 14 years so i grew up with my grandma my mom's mom uh who i love to today and she's alive and she's with my mom mom now and um she raised me because we didn't have enough money to bring all the family into hyderabad which is the city where my mom and dad were and my grandma was practically my mom she raised me until i was 14 and then she had a heart attack and her health started falling apart and then my mom finally made the call to say let's just bring everybody to hyderabad which is where she was and we all uh lived there i had a tough childhood in the sense that my father was not very active in being a dad uh and i i just you know it was a lot so you're thinking about it makes me feel like oh man it was uh it was a lot i frankly it would have been a miracle to get out of pomoro growing up to get to hyderabad that would have been a miracle you know yeah. so anything after that i think is a huge bonus in my life nobody had any expectations on me until i was 14 and i spent a little bit long more time with my mom she was the inflection point in my personal growth and also my career like she mm-hmm. made me dream bigger and she made me take wide bigger shots and made me kind of believe in myself you know like that i'm valuable that i'm worthy that i'm someone with a voice and i should really you know own that space in a way so until then it was crazy but yeah that's where i started you know origin story yeah that's that's very interesting and i think just the importance of having someone who just shows you that you can do whatever you put your mind to it's so yeah. necessary and important whether it's your parents whether it's someone else typically yeah. it's hopefully both your parents or one of your right. parents i'm so glad that she was that person for you to say no kp it doesn't matter if you're like 53rd in class that doesn't matter but like you can make a difference and yeah. i'm sure you know, that the, i'll tell you the crazy part though like the, the, uh, the i call this concept the belief capital right someone believing in you looking straight in the eyes and actually meaning it earnestly that they believe in you when you're trying something can literally change uh the game and how you play the game and how you perceive yourself so the crazy truth is so when i moved to hyderabad and spent more time with my mom and when she you know, started sort of believing in me and asking me to like try things um i went from being the shy kid in the class to one of the most social kids in the class i i was the head of the drama club i was head of the public speaking club and so which is crazy again like in the context of what i'm saying sounds again probably minuscule but for that kid for that kp that was unbelievable now i have a podcast i do like 65 67 episodes or whatever i'm like of course i was i'm talkative but that breakthrough could not have happened without the belief that she gave me the other thing is i went from like someone at the bottom you know percentile in the class to when i graduated 10th grade in high school which is like in india it's a big deal 10th class they call it 10th class exams right state exam i was a school topper for 16 schools in the circuit that we had that's wow, crazy wow. and i was they had like my face on the posters and it's my school's college friend high it still got my name on the record i broke the record with the highest score that they ever had then that means a lot from the lens of being the 53rd in the class uh, my wife the other day asked me you know one thing that i noticed and she's american and so i was telling her that my mom and then some a lot of people actually would disparage me or insult me or like you know make fun of me for my lack of intelligence over intelligence i was not very uh genius like as a kid 
you know, like if you think Sheldon, right, from Big Bang Theory, or, yeah. when I think of sh- smartness and genius, I always think of people like Sheldon who are like innately genius. And I was not that. I was very self-aware. But what's, what's phenomenal is that my mom never really cared for innate smartness um, or genius, inborn genius, right? She was always giving me compliments and positive reinforcement on trying something, giving it a shot, right? Like, and she would reinforce the fact that you should give more shots, try more. She would always say, I don't care if you're not the smartest kid in the class. I want you to be the, the hungriest kid, the most driven kid. And that would make me, but also she would not force it in the sense like you should spend eight hours on this. She would always say, don't care about the scorecard. Don't care about how much marks you got. Focus on the learning, like mm. how much fun you had learning, how much fun you had doing something that you love doing, you know? So many of those lessons and um, frameworks, I still apply. I'm 34 now, I'm like freaking old, right? But I still apply. I was joking with my wife that I feel 34, but my, my body, I feel like I'm 21. I'm so hungry. You know, like that drive is still alive. And I'm like, uh, a lot of people that I'm friends with now, a lot of my peers, you know, a lot of my fellow immigrants from, from India, you know, they're all happy and settled, settling down. And I feel like I'm just starting. You know, the hockey stick is just starting, you know? So I think if you can give someone a gift, it should be about appreciating their drive because drive is permanent forever. And it's a learnable skill as opposed to genius, which is inborn, you know, um, or which is um, innate. I guess you can't take drive out of a person. You can take the person out of a country, move them to a different country, but that drive is not going anywhere. Like, yeah, that's, just, anywhere. that's just how it is. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So then you, you moved to Hyderabad when you were 14 and then obviously yes. you finished high school and undergrad, I'm assuming as well, because you moved to the U.S. for your master's program. Yes. And I saw your tweet about how you talked about how you applied to like around 10 or 11 yeah. uh, programs in the U.S. and you got accepted by one of them, yeah. which was a full scholarship. And then you also had a job before. That story, I think, is incredible because... Those 10 rejections it could definitely have hampered your spirits, right? Like, yeah. wow, I applied to these 11. I only got into one. And then you are on a one-day flight to the U.S. Yeah. Um, I'm curious to hear about just that journey of applying to grad school, if that was an active thing or you knew someone else who had already gone to the U.S. and that was kind of the drive. And then also, yeah. when you were on that plane to the U.S., um, what was going on in your head? Yeah, that's a great on question. That, on that ride to, to the U.S. That's a great question. Um... Let's start with the plain question. What was going on in my head? A huge sense of relief that, um, cause I was hustling my, my ass off for six, seven months to get to that final acceptance from Vanderbilt, which I got a huge sense of relief and a huge sense of awe. I think I was like completely in a sense of awe trance that I can't believe this is happening. Or like there were a couple of times in my life, Harshita, where I thought this is a movie. Like this cannot be real. This is a movie. Like how is this real? And one of them is this moment where Randy gave me a 100% scholarship along with a teaching assistant job without ever interviewing me or seeing my face uh, for nine-month contract. And it blew my mind. And at the time, I was making, I was in TCS, which some of your audience may recognize, the Tata Consulting Services. I was like in a very minuscule role, like forgettable role. Nobody really knew me. Um, and I think it was uh, like one of 80,000 people in that campus. You know, it was huge in Chennai. Uh, which was my first job out of college. And I was making 20000 a piece, which would be like $250 a month. You know, so I was making $250 a month in 2011. 
2011, the two, two-year window. And Vandy offered me um, a full scholarship plus $1,100 per month salary. I was like, what is this? It's a joke. Like, you know, <laughs> and, but the, the, the prelude to that was that summer, I applied to seven or eight universities. Um, many of them rejected me. But, but more importantly, I emailed about 500 professors from these five or eight universities. The reason I did that was because I heard from one of my friends who was at Carnegie Mellon that um, he didn't get the scholarship, but he was saying that there is a path to get scholarship if you prove your merit that you can contribute to research in these departments, you know, in the, in the School of Engineering. Um, if you can prove your merit that you are the kind of person who is hungry and can hustle and can aid in the research and write academic papers, they will consider you, but I don't know which ones. I also didn't know which ones would consider. So when I just got their bunch of emails from the departments, like if you go to their, you know, uh, uh, school of engineering programs, they'll usually say the names of the professors. And I just took a guess at first name dot last name at vandy.edu and things like that. And I just kept emailing them, you know, and now I look back and I'm like, those emails are horrible pitches. But each email was basically a pitch of saying, hey, here's, here's who I am. Here's what I've done in my undergrad. Here's all my accomplishments. A lot of, I did a lot of, over, um, uh, extracurricular activities. So I was trying to say that I'm not the kind of kid who's limited to a syllabus. I want to, I want to give more than I take and do more than I can. And, um, many of them, uh, bounced back bad emails and many of them said politely no, some of them harshly no. And one professor took a shot on me, the head of the chair at Vandy, and that changed my life. He was the one who recommended my name to say, at first, Randy just sent me an email saying you're accepted into the master's in robotics program, master's in electrical engineering with specialization robotics program. But it was 45K for the program. And I was like, I was making $250, you know. There's no way in hell I could pay 45K. Um, does not include the flight chargers or uh, accommodation. There's just the fee of Andy, uh, grad school. So I was like, there's no way I can do this. So I emailed them back saying, hey, if I didn't make it clear, my monthly salary is 250 and there's no way I could afford it. My family can't afford it. Um, and, you know, I think after like four or five emails and follow-ups and things like that, they surprised me out of the blue. It was, I remember the day, June 13th, I think, um, 2011, I got the email saying revised offer to Mr. Pavada. And I was like, what the hell is this? You know, and that revised offer had this, um, you know, had this whole description of two years full scholarship with uh, nine months of TA job. And of course, nine months of TA job became t 24 months of job because I proved my merit even in the job. Like, I didn't have to pay a single penny at Vandy. In fact, they paid me back every month I was there. And so on the plane, I was just thinking, what, what is this miracle? You know, I can't believe it. Um, it also taught me a valuable life lesson, which I think I carry even now. 99% of whatever you want it will meet you halfway if you make the effort. So luck is really just opportunity in motion. But basically, luck is just momentum, you know, and putting in the work and you, you being in motion and creating, um, you're expanding your own luck surface area. Like you can control a lot of that reality, you know, no matter where you are, no matter what circumstances you have. I think it was a big relief because I was uh, sent a bunch of rejections. I got really heart uh, broken. Like one of my favorite schools was uh, Georgia Tech, which ironically, I'm in Atlanta now. So it's funny that I'm sp spending a lot of time in Atlanta without going to Georgia Park. I also dealt with a lot of rejections. So basically, t it toughened me up a little bit and also made me appreciate 
the right thing will just change your life and you don't need to worry about everything else that doesn't come your way you know mm-hmm. um, yeah, on the plane I was just mostly feeling a sense of relief and awe and I remember on the plane thinking I want to this is the biggest stage in the world America right to be an entrepreneur to build a company to build a business to build a career this is the greatest arena the biggest baddest arena in the world I think with the resources with the opportunities so I was thinking that um on the plane that I want to be an entrepreneur in America so it only took me a sweet 12 years to become one full-time founder so finally in December 2022 I finally became a full-time founder that also teaches you patience right like 12 years I don't think anybody that would wait 12 years to follow their dream but I waited you know and I I know that anything that I want now I want to build a billion dollar company I want to you know create a thousand episodes on my podcast and things like that I know that the answer is just play the long game because I've played it a couple times 12 years is a long time especially in times like today where people often often tend to see overnight successes it's ah. like oh yeah it just happened or um everyone just wants things very quickly like i've been yeah. putting in effort for one week why have i not seen results yet and then you see people's decades worth of work yeah. and years worth of i think you sharing that perspective like it's been 12 years and now i have the freedom to start my own company so you end up at vanderbilt and what was your first time in the us like uh in terms of just you step in into this country that's so different from india Yeah. In terms of pretty much everything, right? Uh and I can speak to this as well. It comes with a lot of insecurities. You come from yeah. a different country. Accent is one. Yeah. Clothing style is one. Um what were some of your insecurities when you first moved to the US and you were in college? Yeah, it's a great question. I think um for me being at Vandy was really uh nerve-wracking because Vandy had so many talented, smart people and for the first half of my time that I felt like an outlier I felt like a outsider um, mostly intellectually because they were like really smart people you know like um and with me I think they gave me a shot because of my drive I don't think they gave me a shot because of my IQ I know that for a fact you know because every class I went to I had to work my ass off to you know to get an A but though I had I told myself that hey god gave me this chance to be here to really 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 um like explore what this university has to offer I'm going to make the most of this. I cannot suddenly increase my IQ by 30 points right overnight, but I could do things that maybe somebody in my shoes would not be willing to do or driven to do, right? So I did um a lot of things at Vandy that I think a lot of my engineering friends were like, you know, they didn't do or they didn't want to do. Um I took I took a creative advertising course, you know, uh, on the other campus. I did like a filmmaking uh workshop. I was the uh vice president the South Asian Students Club. Like I was basically doing everything that I could, like make the most of this opportunity, right? Uh I got 7 A's, I remember in in, in masters but 1 C, which is the hardest subject man. I was so hard. Um What class was it? I forgot the name. It's like so hard. I tried my best, but it was absolutely like you just needed to have the smarts. You know, you just I couldn't everything else I felt like, you know, there was other classes like computer vision and things like that which I could hustle and then, you know, get them right. This one was uh, a lot around physics and then You just yeah. needed to be smart, and I was like, "Yeah, I just, you know, <laughs> fundamentally, I don't think like I'm, you know, that smart. That's okay. That's okay, right?" Um, I got a C, but I took a humble pie, and I said, "You know, I tried my best. I gave it all. Got a C. Accept it." So the other thing is, you know, what's been very healthy for me, Ashita, is that because of my mom not being such a such a stringent person around grades, I never really took any of the grades seriously, mm. and I didn't 
mostly from love, mostly from curiosity and fun. And hence, when I got an A, I was grateful. And once I got a C, I was like, all right, I brush it off. Never let that affect my self-worth or um, you know, my confidence or anything like that. So the other thing I noticed, uh, one of the obvious things was when I came to America, I had a lot of accent challenges. I'm sure you know this. Um, because I, I had the Indian version of American accent, you know, coming in, and then I had uh the Indian English accent, you know. And so I was like my my speech was all over the place. My intonation was all over the place. So one of the one of the first things I said was, Do I want to live like this for the rest of my life? Speaking broken English, um, can I fix this to an extent? So I actually took two or three uh back to back semester courses in the English department, you know, oh. audited. And I fixed my grasp of um intonation and like the language basics, you know, which I had so much fun. Again, I didn't do it for like people. I did it genuinely because in my mind, I just could not stand listening to myself. I think the curiosity is your super superpower. It's the ultimate shield to put all your self-judgment at bay. You know, when you're really curious, you can you cannot have curiosity and judgment at the same place. You know? Mm. There's this famous Ted Lasso quote, right? Like be more curious and less judgmental, right? Like something on the lines right. of that. So anything I did was mostly because of my own curiosity. If I see a gap in my thing, I'll be like, okay, I'm curious to fix this. How do I do it? Not from a place of, man, I suck and I'm not good enough. None of that. A lot of that credit goes to my mom because she put a lot of good stuff in my brain when I was you know, 14. Because even culturally, I was very curious about our differences in the traditions and cultures. And like, I went to a bunch of church events in Nashville. Nashville is very big a like Tennessee and Nashville are very big into, you know, uh, Christianity. And I grew up Hindu. So I was very curious. And I went to a bunch of churches, you know, Baptist churches. And I would sit there on Sundays. Um, I tried to like really think less of myself as I'm an Indian person. You're an American person. You're a Ghana. Just like they're all people. You know, we're all people. Um, again, this is one of those things when I was young. Growing up in India, this was um, impossible to digest that. You can build such a strong empathy and connection and bond and friendships with anybody from any culture anywhere right like my son who's two and a half i think about him and i'm like is he indian is he american like what is he right but right. i love him to death like i just love him so much definitely love him more than my dad loved me you know <laughs> my life has been like super as i reflect on it it's been super fascinating that how many levels of barriers internally that i've broken uh surely by existing i didn't do anything i didn't do it like i'm not preaching you know it's my yeah. life right? you, you live your life but just by sheer existence, I broke a bunch of barriers. Speaking of barriers, I think one of the things when I was very fascinated by is the whole building in public ideology coming from someone who grew up in India. Like we've talked about it before, but I would love to like revisit that is because the whole concept of Nazar or evil eye is so <laughs> prevalent in India, right? And for people who are listening who are not South Asians, what that basically just means is that you, you set goals, you try to achieve them. And, but you don't tell anybody about it until you've actually achieved them. And then you're a little bit more public and share and share outwardly a lot more. Um, whereas building in public basically is the exact opposite <laughs> approach to that ideology. So I'm really curious about first, what does it mean to build in public? And second, what motivated you to break that mindset and barrier coming from a society that doesn't operate like that? And then for you to just pave that path for a lot of other people as well. So what does it mean to me? Um, let's start there. So building in public to me is a philosophy where you choose to share bits and pieces of behind the scenes 
of whatever project or business or career that you're um, aspiring to build. And, and you're choosing to share um, you know, the journey, the ups and downs before you get to the destination. I think that's the key there. Like, I think a lot of the times people wait until they get to the destination and then they you know, write a book or they you know, uh, write uh, a reflective blog post or they talk about going about the podcast and talk about here's all the things that I did or all the things that I've um, achieved. And I feel like you know, it's almost too late. Like If you talk to Brian Chesky, he, he said this a couple of times um, on, on Twitter where he was saying the only thing I regret is I wish I documented more of the early stages, early days of Airbnb. You know, and I, I wish I was more prolific in terms of um, sharing the ups and downs, um, the founder journey and like some decisions that he's taken uh, or just the journey itself, right? And early on, what do you remember from six months ago? Like what, what meal did you eat October 28th, you know, 2022? Do you remember? No. So of course you don't remember uh, what decision you've taken that day or, you know, who was that small win customer that you had like who was that um you know paying customer that you just gained on that day or who whose episode did you do um on the podcast you know three months ago so when you reflect back it's very very hard to get to the even the factual side of you know the journey more importantly it's impossible to get to the emotional side of the journey because yeah. as i reflect with you about my 10 year 12 year time in america i actually don't even remember um a lot of my emotions through the journey Right. There were so many emotions that I felt so many times I felt like I wanted to quit. There were so many times that I felt like I was in the wrong direction. I don't feel that right now. I feel amazing. Right now. So it's like hard for me to pause and be like, you know, 2017, when did I feel so low? You know, so to me, the alternate approach is as a founder or as a creator or as an ambitious professional, like what if you just documented your journey along the way as it unfolds to you? Yeah. And of course, choose to whatever extent you want to choose. You don't have to post everything in you know plain and clear like you don't have to completely reveal your strategies or if you just had an interview with meta you don't have to share the seven questions they asked you but you could share the fact that you flew to sf and there was an interview with meta and here's four things or three things you learned because that can help somebody who's four steps behind you everything that i'm talking about right now uh hopefully can help someone who is eight nine steps behind me you know, in the journey, because I wish that I had that kind of inspiration, you know, five years ago, six years ago, right? I wish more people, you know, were more vulnerable and open and honest about the journey. So I think that's the way I see building in public. Um, it has, of course, some obvious risks and concerns that I'm happy to address. But the upside, a lot of things in life where, you know, coming to America um, or marrying my wife or, you know, starting my business. It's never a binary 100% yes, this is perfect decision. It's always an upside and downside decision. You have to really believe the upside is far higher than the downside. And then just take the shot. If you don't take the shot, you're always going to be on the sidelines. you know. So moving to America, the upside is that this is the greatest arena in terms of building companies, technology, you know, abundance, and all kinds of things, wealth creation, generational wealth creation. But the downside is that I would miss, you know, and like home food yeah. and being next to my mom or whoever. But I weighed my decisions and I thought I can always go back and visit multiple times a year. I can always get her to come here multiple times, which happened many times. So the upside outweighed the downside in all my decisions. Same thing with my wife, marrying her at the time. Like now marrying her would be a lot more financial sense because I'm now a lot more financially secure. But I married her during 
not so financially secure times, but I did the right thing. You know, you know I feel the same kind of drive and the upside of building in public, which makes, uh, which makes you infinitely more well-networked online. The fact that you're in, you know, in California, I'm in Georgia, and the fact that we're doing this podcast, we never crossed our paths in real life, mm-hmm. is the proof and the power of building in public, right? Like your content building in public, my content building in public has crossed paths. Um, so many things has happened like that for me. Like Gary V showed up on my podcast, episode number four, purely that building in public. That was incredible. That was amazing. And I had like um, Reddit's co-founder Alexis Ohanian show up on my podcast. Same thing. And I, my job at OnDeck, the way I got the job was also built in public. You know, I made a Twitter thread and I wrote a bunch of reasons of why an ambitious startup would hire me, how I can add value and prove my merit through proof of work with like links to all that stuff. And I got like, I think 16 interviews from that thread. The upsides are infinite. When you, when you really get a hang of how to do this well, it also makes you build thick skin, Harshita, which is a very valuable trait if you want to be CEO if you want to be a great founder, which I want to, you need to develop thick skin in the sense that you have to listen to people's feedback and you have to face the music in public. Like if they say something bad or negative or critical, harsh feedback, you have to take it. You cannot just say, I'm going to hide in my basement. Like, just don't give me feedback, right? Um, so it, it helps you to practice all of this. Um, and I thought that was really, really valuable. And I kept building in public since uh, 2018. Wow. I would say, though, if, for people listening, if you haven't read KP's blog on how he got the job at OnDeck, it's pretty freaking cool. And that's typically what I've been noticing is that a lot of people have been doing that. And that's been working mm-hmm. because so many resumes get dumped into that application tracking system. And well, you're one of 10,000 then at yeah. that point. But setting yourself apart is, is, is very important and necessary to get your application or get you in front of the right people. Um, and I think like your thread definitely did that for um, yeah. OnDeck other uh, like Gary Vee and other people as well. Yeah. I think w- one one interesting observation I had um, over the last four or five years especially is I think the first seven years of my time here in America, I feel like I wasted it in the sense that, I mean, I've done all these like psychological activities and like things like that, but I I actually didn't really get the the Brahma Sutra. Like I didn't really understand the sort of the, the secret. You know, the secret is um, permissionless action. Hmm. basically if you want to do x as long as it doesn't hurt anybody as long as you can do it in a micro scale just do it and so most people like when they want to start a podcast they're waiting for this amazing guest to come give them permission to start or they're waiting for podcast setup you know they're waiting for a perfect mic waiting for a perfect room i started my podcast with like the shittiest you know room setup with like almost like dark alley lighting like it was so bad and I look back at it and laugh at it. But I started it. You know, at 63 episodes in, I'm just getting started. Right? Um, and it, this is like the same thing with product hunt launches. I started my first product hunt launch was like a dud. And then now I'm 83 launches in. Wow. Everything is a matter of reps. So when you get to 83, I can do this in my sleep. Which I actually, mm-hmm. I frankly, I close my eyes. I can tell you exactly where the buttons are. Exactly how to click. Exactly how to write copy. Exactly. Because I've done it 83 times, right? Anything, when you do it over and over and over again, and nobody, from my product and launches or my episodes, I didn't need anyone's permission. Mm-hmm. As long as I did my 9 to 5 job and I did, uh, say, carved out like 40 minutes a day to my work, which is these, you can do this anytime, anybody, anywhere, right? Um, I couldn't do in-person podcasts, so I did virtual podcasts. 
I couldn't do with Joe Rogan mic. I did with the Shiri mic. And then now I got an upgrade. Whatever you want to do is achievable and within your reach as long as you take action in a permissionless way where you're not waiting on somebody to give you permission. And more importantly, you're willing to suck for a long time. Mm, Even if it sucks, one. you should ship it. So my first episode sucks or sucked to that KP. I shipped it. Second, shipped it. Same thing with everything. Like I built 18 no code projects. First one was a dud, complete flop. The willingness to continue despite not having sexy results is the ultimate flex. I feel like that is what makes billionaires billionaires. They will wait until they get the right thing working, but they're not afraid to keep trying and keep trying and keep trying. So this friendship, this, this kind of friendship that you have to make with failure, with not feeling great or with not things not sounding and looking great is what makes legends. You know, you have to really just embrace the sucky parts. It's like, fine, yeah. I'll get it. I'll get it over time. You know, Naval said, um, like, I think greatness is 10,000 iterations. So you just have to, you know, do it again. And yeah. it's a good sign that when you look back and you realize like, wow, I really suck. That means you're in a much better place. <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, I think that's the thing. Like, again, I wish somebody gave this pamphlet when I got down in, in Nashville airport when I got to America because I mean it because I because of what I did was for seven years, I was waiting for Microsoft because I went to Microsoft um, after graduation to get a job um, at one of their campuses. And um I, I mean, I remember calling so many friends and calling so many friends and colleagues and everybody like to help me get a job in America as a as a student. Yeah, yeah. And and I didn't do any of the things that I did to attract the job that I got at OnDeck. Because with OnDeck, I was completely proof of work. Here's what I do. Here's what I've done. Here's proof of work. Boom. Right. And then here's how, how I'm different. And I really proved my merit. With all the other things in the past of sort of until that OnDeck moment, I was waiting for somebody to give me permission. Like I was waiting for IBM to choose me so I can work for them. See, I keep getting so many pitches these days, um, Harshita, about my podcast. So people want to work as an editor. They want to work as a creative writer or whatever. And they always DM me. And I am always laughing at the way the DM comes because this is exactly how I was seven years ago. That most people are just, you know, um, they do what they call spray and pray, where they're just like constantly spraying DMs, you know, and praying that somebody will work. So, yeah. Yeah. That permissionless action is a mindset shift that i've had to definitely overcome a lot because yeah. it, it just doesn't it doesn't didn't work the way i grew yeah. up right that's just not the concept and then you come here and people are just like not really waiting for permission obviously like if you're doing something illegal like that's right. right but if it's not hurting anybody physically or emotionally or in right. any way that mindset has been something that i've been like trying to build over and over and it's very necessary just to be able to like, whether you're a founder or even like if you're an operator somewhere else, right? Yes. As a person, that's that's an important uh, mindset, a skill to have. I, when I was at OnDeck, I, I got a great chance to interact with so many amazing tech titans. I got to interview so many people who started these amazing tech companies uh, and spend time with them. One of the things that I took away from all that experience was how insanely similar they're all to us, to me, at least yeah. to me. Except they had this DNA of permissionless action. They would just do things that they wanted to do. Um, and number two is they would do those things for an ungodly amount of time that an average person will quit. Right? Um, that was blows my mind. Harry Stebbings. Harry Stebbings uh, is a great podcaster. We talked about him, I think, last time. Um, I love Harry. We DM each other a couple of times. 
What I love about him is he had Rishi Sunak on his podcast a month ago. The freaking prime minister of the UK which invited him to 10 Downing Street yeah. to have a live pod. But before that, he did 3,000 episodes. 3,000. And so you can imagine if, if I feel this confident and this hyped and this excited at 63 with my podcast episode, imagine how much I would feel at 3,000. How much confidence how much skill that I would have in terms of interviews, how much more systems and um, organizational infrastructure that I would have. You know, they got, I think he was saying something on the lines of 20 million views for um, that episode. And wow. to get the, I feel like if I did the episode with Rishi Sunak right tomorrow, I would get 100 views. It's not, it's not the fact that, you know, um, it's about Rishi Sunak or not. It's you need to have the infrastructure around systems in place and the teams in place so that when you have a great piece of content, you can really crush distribution with systems. You you know exactly how to put it on TikTok. You know exactly what keywords to use. You know exactly how to hack YouTube shorts in a way. So without those things, which will only come through repetition and journey, you're never going to get to um, the, this destination. You know, So I think that was my big takeaway is that the difference between you and your heroes is just a body of work. So just, you know, be patient and do the body of work. Yeah. But you have the choice to do it in public. And that way, when you look back, everything has a timestamp. You know, so. Yeah. Harry's story is incredible. And like, I yeah. think about it a lot more. It's like 3,000 episodes is no joke. The For amount sure. of effort that goes into editing one episode Doing it over and over and over for 3,000 times is crazy. Yeah. I want to focus a little bit more on the immigrant side of things. You've been such a strong advocate for immigrant founders in public. And um, that's also one of the other things I really admire about you is like you've been through the journey and you're also now spreading more awareness and also just helping more immigrant founders start companies in the U.S. Um, and you've navigated the visa life for, for many, many years before eventually getting the green card. Navigating immigration while wanting to start a company can be very, very taxing like emotionally, right. you know, physically, financially, in every way. Right. And then when you have all these stresses in your life, it's hard to develop that long-term mindset, which is like thinking in decades instead of thinking in weeks or months right. or years. But that long-term mindset is also so, so necessary to be a successful founder. How did you develop that long-term mindset while you were figuring things out? Because... You said that you've been wanting to be an entrepreneur since at the time you came to the U.S., but yeah. you only were able to get that opportunity or you had the space and freedom to do that like 11, 12 years later. How did you think about that? Yeah, it was very stressful. And there were many times uh, where I thought maybe I should go home. Maybe I should just go back to India. Um, maybe it would have been, it would be easier to start a startup in India. And, you know, of course, it's actually as, as an Indian immigrant here in the U.S., if I go back, the one of the Beautiful things there is that you will have right away, you will have freedom, right? You don't need a visa. You know, you just have freedom. Um, you're basically trading one set of problems to another set of problems, I think. So when you go there, then you have other things to worry about, right? You, then you're worried about, you, you're restarting your life in a way after spending, you know, a, a long time here and going back and the culturally it's very different. I think it's very, very hard to assimilate back. Um, once you spend enough time here, they had so many bouts of, doubt and the the h1b lottery system really um you know was was nervous you know like i was like okay 
do I have to pack my bags and be ready when the news comes out? I was lucky enough that I won the lottery, the H-1B lottery. Um, I didn't have to reapply or anything. Um, they gave me six years of bandwidth. And towards the end of the six years, then I was thinking about, okay, what's next? And you did like an extension and like all these things. I think one of the things that I, as I reflected on um, recently, Ashita, is that if you go to immigrant forums, it's literally filled with anxiety, FUD, right? Fear, uh, what is the fear, uncertainty, and doubt. It's literally mm -hmm. bad for your health. And I, I used to go there and be like so scared and like be stressed out because of their horrible story. The other thing that I've felt all the, the decade here is mostly how much confusing information was there on all these platforms and how much misdirection or misleading information or half-assed information was present on all these forums. And it's very hard to get to the truth when people are not, you know, willingly like sharing, here's the truth or here's the, here's, here's the good parts, here's the bad parts and things like that. So. Um, I think just the knowledge and information-wise, we have a huge gap uh, for immigrants here. One thing I saw with my time at OnDeck, I was um, leading an initiative to create um, some version of a, you know, fellowship for immigrant founders, especially. And it never really came to fruition because we had uh, financial challenges. And we're trying to make sure that the math worked out. We couldn't at the end. Um, I, I still believe that there's an opportunity to... Um, create a fellowship for immigrant founders and equip me, equip them with the information, knowledge, and tactics around not just H-1B, but more importantly, um, O-1 visa. I think a lot of people, and I would have been definitely qualified for O-1 if I applied. I just never, didn't even know. I thought O-1 was for uh, like genius visa, right? And that's the big confusion. Um, and I think it's a myth because some of my good friends, um, and Ankur Nagpal will agree, who's, you know, founder of Teachable and now he's running Ocho and some of these, some of these people will tell you like the truth, which is Owen visa a more legitimate path and faster path to get to if you're a, you want to be a founder um, than H1B green card process, which is insanely long. I was in Atlanta, was definitely not plugged into um, Silicon Valley or um, you know YC. But through my work at Ondek, I became friends with a lot of these people who were serving immigrant founders, um, Acorn Law Firm, like some of these people. Mm -hmm. I didn't even know that these existed. I think that was my biggest uh, challenge, Ashita, that I really didn't know that there were options. And so there was, if there is any, one thing that I wish I did differently was um, just being around the right kind of people, being around other doers, other founders, other ambitious immigrant founders, I think, uh, because their open, free exchange of ideas and knowledge and tactics will really elevate how you feel about yourself and how many shots you think you have. My my belief is this, um, Harshita, if you really want it for yourself, you'll wait. If you want it for the society or public validation um, or somebody's approval, you will give up. So you should be really selfish with your goals. You should really want them for yourself. The new goals now that I have that are very much for me, you know, me as in like me and my family, right? But like nothing to do with anyone's approval or praise or you know, whatever. And yeah. uh, it gets easier, I think, once you get to 30s. You genuinely don't give a shit. <laughs> that definitely helps, I think. Um, caring less about what other people think, but really being heads-down focused on what you want to achieve for you and what you want for your life and surrounding yourself with people who also want that for you. That support is so necessary uh, when you're yeah. doing or navigating this in general. Yeah. Don't give up hope. I think, you know, like the the weird thing is all the, all these ups and downs. Like somehow I never felt that it was 
like I would never achieve the dream. At some point, you'll realize that the dream was never to be the CEO or the lifestyle or the suits or the business cards. The dream slowly morphs as you age or as you get older, as you spend more time with your own dream and asking yourself, why am I doing this? Why, why am I so driven? Why am I wanting to start a company? What is the real why? It slowly morphs into almost like an urge to serve people. Mm-hmm. You know, and it, it becomes a profound urge to help and serve people. And in this case, it's customers. Um, and so you're basically liberated from the cage of expectations and the cage of impatience. You just know it'll happen. Mm-hmm. And you're wi- you're willing to wait and be happy until it happens. Yeah, yeah, that's true. I have a hundred more questions, but I know yeah. but KP, it's been an incredible time getting to know you, uh, learning about you in general and just learning about all the things that you've done so far and just your mindset. I think it's such a, a fantastic thing to hear from your own words. And now you're paving a path for other people to follow their own dream. Um, so thank you so much for sharing one hour of your day with me. I really appreciate it. Thank you. It's been so much fun. I actually can't believe that we've, we've made it to one hour. Uh, that's usually a great sign of great conversation and, and, and being in a flow state. So thank you so much. Um, thanks for having me and wishing you and the podcast a, a, you know, a great future. Thank you for joining us today and listening to this episode of Founders Without Borders. To stay connected and informed about new episodes, Find us on LinkedIn, Instagram, and Twitter at Founders Without Borders. If you haven't already, please hit the follow button wherever you listen to your podcasts so that you never miss an episode. Thank you for your support and for tuning in to this episode. This is Harshita, and I will see you next time.